Our Heavenly Father, Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Who can stand up in front of your people and talk about your grace, which is so great? Who is worthy for that? I certainly am not. None of us are, but for your grace. And I pray that you will pour out your grace upon us, give us the ability and the ears to hear, and I pray that your word would go forth and do what you would have it do, that you would accomplish the praise of Jesus Christ today, the magnification of his name. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as Pastor said, we were in the middle of a series, and we had scripture alone last week. Brother Ken, Pastor, started us with Christ alone two weeks ago. And so now we're at grace alone. There are five uh, alones on the back of your bulletin that represent the core doctrines of the Reformation from 500 years ago. So we're going to step back in our minds 500 years ago. It was the summer of 1505. A 21-year-old law student was returning to school when a thunderstorm rolled in and changed the course of his life. A lightning bolt flashed near him, and he cried out in terror, Help, St. Anne! I'll become a monk! Martin Luther survived the storm, and he kept his promise, becoming an Augustinian monk to his father's great disappointment. But as a faithful monk, peace with God still eluded him. Because like many people of his day, Luther saw God the Father primarily as a fearful and disapproving judge. Jesus was a holy and distant Savior. Mary, however, she was human and not divine. And as a woman, she was more naturally expected to be able to take pity on us. But yet even Mary... She was considered to be a perpetual virgin and even sinless. She was still too removed for most people. So the saints were a bridge to get to Mary so that she could influence her son to have mercy upon us. St. Anne was the imaginary name of Mary's mother. And it is to St. Anne that Luther cried out for help. In such a religious system, prayers to the saints made sense. Pilgrimages to shrines or sites that housed holy relics from the martyrs, that made sense. It was in the time just before Martin Luther that the rosary was developed. It was a beaded necklace that anyone could afford, and it functioned just like a relic of their own, reassuring the, the faithful penitents, they could count their prayers as they went through the beads and be assured that they were storing up merit for themselves for the future. It was through these prayers and pilgrimages and by receiving communion, by giving to the church, by sponsoring prayers and masses to be said for you or your loved ones, or by purchasing indulgences, was also through good works performed for others. All of this was how one could earn favor from God and merit additional grace. And if the saints heard our prayers, they may share some of their bonus merits for us as well. 
the thought of the day was, God will not deny grace to those who do what they can. All of this was needed because after death, you were surely to expect a long period of suffering and purging of your sins in a place called purgatory before ever daring to hope that you might reach heaven. It is against this backdrop of thought that we come to our topic for today's sermons. We have seen that the reformers held that scripture alone was the sole authority for faith and practice. And scripture, they found, put forth Christ alone as the Savior. It said nothing about praying to the saints and nothing about praying to Mary. And even more than that, scripture taught that grace was not something that we could earn. Instead, it was unmerited favor that God bestowed upon us solely from his kindness and love toward us on the basis of Christ. It was grace alone that could save us, not grace coupled with human merit. So with those thoughts in view, let's turn to our text, Titus chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So before going straight into this text, I do want to set the stage a little bit about the nature of grace and what it means in Scripture. So first of all, what is grace? It's a common throwaway term that we use in in church all the time, but it's one of those terms that can be a little hard to define. There are several different definitions. At a basic level, grace means unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. And uh, a very memorable way of knowing what grace means is to take the letters of the word grace in English and put them as God's riches at Christ's expense. So God's riches, his favor at Christ's expense. Grace is paid for by Christ and his work on the cross. Perhaps the best uh, definition that I've found comes from William Newman, a 19th century Baptist. He said, grace is the free favor of God conferred upon the unworthy. The free favor of God conferred upon the unworthy. Another way to get at what grace is, is to compare it with mercy. And we find both terms in our text. They're very similar. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. 
overlooking our sins. He could punish us, but he in mercy does not give the punishment. Grace, however, is God giving us what we do not deserve, not just letting us off the hook, but filling our bank account with his own blessings, blessing us in spite of our rebellion. And both terms, grace and mercy, come together in God's loving kindness. Um, Scripture uses words interchangeably sometimes, and um, it's helpful to understand there's a bigger idea behind both grace and mercy. They stem from God's kindness and love, as we see in our text in verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. And finally, what does grace do in the Bible? And we'll get to that in our text as well. But grace in the Bible can refer to God giving us the gospel. So that's a grace that he gives the gospel to people. Uh, Grace in giving us the opportunity to receive salvation. Grace is also giving us the ability to respond to the offer of salvation. And it's even enabling us to be able to believe at all. And we'll have more on that later if we have time. Sometimes grace is a term used for the gospel itself. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, it says, The gospel of the grace of God. Or in Acts 14, uh, 26, they were commended to the grace of God. It's also a, a way of describing the work of God in this world, the grace. And you see that throughout Acts. And in fact, you see in Acts 15, you're saved through grace. There's all kinds of a, a wonderful rich study is to, to follow the word grace through the New Testament. Grace is also a special grace or enabling power to do what we know is right or to withstand a trial. God gives grace to go through a trial. God gives grace to empower you to live obediently. So grace has many uses as we look at it in Scripture. So with all of that in mind, how are we going to divide up our text here? Well, we're going to take all the verses except verse 8 together, verses 3 through 7. That is talking about the salvation <clears throat> that grace brings. So if you're taking notes, the salvation that grace brings. And then verse 8 is the sanctification that grace brings. And then we'll look at other texts, if we have time, for the sovereignty that brings grace as our third point. So here we are, the salvation that grace brings. And the first point is the need for salvation. Why do we need to be saved? And it's somewhat redundant, but in our day and age, we do have people who don't even see the need of being saved. Martin Luther was not that way in his day. He definitely felt the need for salvation because if the lightning bolt had struck him, he was not ready to meet his maker. He was afraid and he was not ready. He was very aware of the sinfulness of his self. And what we see here in Titus is that whether these people were aware or not, they were sinful. And he is talking about us. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, some of us might say, wait, 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 that doesn't really describe me. Well, it does. If you peel back the layers of your heart, it even starts in grade school. Um, Children having malice and envy, hating and hating one another. So easy, so simple for that to come into human beings. So the condition of humanity is described here. We are all slaves to sin. And the Bible teaches that in Adam we all fell. And we inherit a nature that is contrary to God. That is enslaved to sin. Totally depraved and fallen. Sin comes naturally and humanity could say that we pass our days in malice and envy. And if you look at Facebook or the news these days, you can underscore that point. Malice and envy, each side against the other side. It doesn't matter what side you are. There's all kinds of malice, bitterness, envy, and gloating over the falls of other people. The assumption in Titus is that this condition is worthy of judgment. It doesn't explicitly say that, but a parallel passage does. I'm going to flip over to Ephesians 5. And you'll already, if you know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you'll see a lot of similarities between that and Titus 3. But Ephesians 5, verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So it's not just that they don't have an inheritance in the kingdom, but that the wrath of God falls on humankind because of this kind of behavior. So obviously, Titus, the author of Titus, Paul, he is assuming that we know that. That this condition, had we stayed there, we, we would have been condemned. And therefore, we needed the kindness, of the goodness and loving kindness of God to appear so that we could be saved. So that's the need for salvation. And I'm going quickly here. Next, the provision of salvation. Verses 4 through the first part of verse 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared... He saved us. So that's the provision of salvation. The appearing word there parallels chapter 2, verse 11 of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the grace of God is another way of saying the salvation, the goodness and loving kindness of God. That appeared at a point in time when Jesus Christ came. God has no compulsion that makes him have to offer salvation to humanity, however. So humanity has fallen, but what we now see is grace appears. Remember, grace is unmerited. There's no reason that grace should have just showed up now after this. Um, These people are hateful. They're enemies of God, Romans 5.10 says. So why would God do that? 
God has no compulsion that makes him have to offer salvation to humanity. It is purely from his grace and mercy, which appeared to us when Jesus came and the gospel was revealed. And then it also says, he saved us, verse 5. We know these words and we take them for granted. He saved us. Yep, there's a Savior, it's God. But think about that. God himself, who made all people, made the world, made the universe... God in Christ is the very one who saved us. The one we offended and thumbed our noses at is the one who saved us. God himself intervening for us. What grace indeed. So that's the provision of salvation. Now the basis of salvation. The last part of verse 5 and the last part of verse 6. So not he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to his own mercy. So just that snippet of verse 5. And then verse 6. He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the basis of salvation is Jesus Christ our Savior. And it's not because of works done in righteousness. But according to his own mercy. So what is that talking about? The basis of salvation The truth we see in Titus is that people that God bothered to save were not in any way deserving. Now, I skipped one point here. So some people make it seem that God, the reason he's saved is because he's in heaven and he's a little bit bored. And so there's these people over here. I could make people and I could have fellowship with them and have a great time with them and go play golf with them when they come to heaven. So this is a great idea. Let's do this. That is not the picture of of reality that we see in Scripture. The truth is that there were people and all the people that he made rebelled against him. And none of them were worthy of saving at all. They were hateful people, enemies of God. So why would he save them? Verse 5, the negative reason. It's not because of anything that they did. Not because of any works which we did. Or could do in our own righteousness. It says not because of works done by us. In righteousness. There's no works in righteousness you could do. That would make God want to save you. Nothing. Because to God they're all worthless works. They're worse than nothing. They're empty. They're filthy rags Isaiah says. The positive reason why God would bother to save people who don't like him is because of his own mercy, grace, and love for us. According to his own mercy. And all of this, this basis of salvation comes through Jesus Christ our Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Savior is not a throwaway line. Martin Luther, in his sermon on Christmas Day in 1522 on this passage had this to say, Through Christ, grace and salvation are conferred upon you. He having rendered full obedience to all the commandments of God and satisfied God's justice in your stead and for you, grace and salvation are conferred upon you because he is worthy. This is true Christian faith. We receive absolution and grace at no cost or labor on our part. 
but not without cost and labor on the part of Christ. Isn't that amazingly rich words there? The basis of salvation is not our works. It is because of God's mercy and it is through the acts of Christ, his positive righteousness, his active righteousness, which is given and credited to us and his passive righteousness dying in our place. So that's the basis of salvation. So clearly seen here in Titus. Now the application of salvation, the part that I skipped over the verse five C and verse six a. So how salvation was applied. It's according to his own mercy through Jesus Christ, not because of our works, What is it? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. So there is an application here of salvation work. Salvation is applied through the Spirit, and it involves a spiritual washing, showing up at God's car wash, so to speak, except the Holy Spirit is doing an awful lot of cleansing Compare this to Ephesians 5, 26. Having cleansed her or the church by the washing of water with the word. So there is a washing, there is a cleansing that happens here. This is the new birth, the new creation. The washing of regeneration is first and then the renewal of the Holy Spirit and the most natural way to take those words is that they describe the same event. The washing of regeneration is the same as the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's doing the washing. The renewing comes from the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is giving life and renewal. In the English, it sounds like, you know, restoring back to life what already had been alive, but that's not the meaning in the Greek. It's really the being made new or making new. So you have the uh, regenerating work of the Spirit and the making new work of the Spirit, which is all in one sense described as a washing that takes place. This is the new birth. The salvation is a new birth. It is the creation of a new creation within us. God makes us into new creatures when he applies salvation to us. And here is some more thoughts from Martin Luther's sermon on this passage. The thought is, it will not do to patch up or mend the life here and there with works. No, an entirely new disposition is necessary. The nature must be changed. Then works will follow spontaneously. It's not that, okay, we have salvation, so let's just kind of fix ourselves up here and make ourselves nice and shiny for God. No, God has to change our heart, totally give us a new creation. And then from that new creation, works will flow spontaneously. Now, unlike what Martin Luther did see, baptism is not necessarily in view here. Instead, the act that baptism in part symbolizes, baptism at its most basic symbolic sense is washing of water. 
And it's, that's one of the things that it symbolizes. And it's symbolizing this, this spiritual washing that happens, which is why as Baptists we hold baptism to only be for those who have had that experience of new birth and washing in their life. Another description of this washing of water, this cleansing process, is the first part of verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is another way to say it. So the Spirit coming into your life, the renovation that changes you into a new creature called the new birth, that is the same thing. This harkens back to Pentecost and the promises that ultimately stem all the way back to the Old Testament, that God will pour his spirit out on us. That happens at the moment of new birth, the moment when we have salvation applied to us. This spiritual birth and cleansing is an act that God, the Holy Spirit, does. And You'll have to forgive me. One more Martin Luther quote. It was just too good to leave out some of these quotes. The apostle terms this washing a regeneration, a renewing of the Holy Spirit, to fully express the power and efficacy of grace. This washing is a thing so vitally important, it must be affected not by a creature, but by the Holy Spirit. How completely, O holy Paul, thou dost reject the free will, the good works, and the great merits of presumptuous saints. How high thou exaltest our salvation at the same time, bringing it so near to us, yes, even within ourselves. Do you see that? This salvation is God, the Holy Spirit, the one who moved over the waters when the world was created. That God working in your heart, coming into you. That's how important and how big and how difficult the work of salvation is. And yet how near and wonderful and marvelous and gracious it is that he would stoop to come into us. So that's the application of... Of salvation, And next week, you'll hear the sermon on faith alone, which is the instrument through which salvation gets applied when we believe. But finally, in our text here, the end of salvation, verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So salvation is experienced now. The new creation work is done now with the Holy Spirit living in you. But it is not fully realized until we experience eternal life as the heirs of Christ. This hope is the end or the goal to which salvation points. God saved us to experience this joy in him forever because of his kindness And all of that, because of his kindness and grace, not because he needed us, but he wanted to bless us graciously. That's the end of salvation. Now, um, we're going to move to the next point, but first I wanted to just give a little excerpt from something from the Reformers again. In 1529, some of the major Reformers, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bucer, Philip Melanchthon, and six other men met to try to see if they could agree. And they had a statement of faith. They agreed on all but one point. Communion separated them. But 
what they did agree with was strictly focused on this grace alone teaching and very different than the Catholic Church of the day. Here are some of the points that they agreed on. We believe that we are saved from original sin and all other sin and eternal death if we believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Without this faith, no good deed, social status, or religious order can free us from our sins. Such faith is a divine gift which we cannot earn with works or merit, nor create of our own accord. Rather, it comes from and is created by the Holy Spirit wherever it pleases, when we hear the gospel or the words of Christ. And then such faith is our justification before God, on which basis he accounts us saved, pious, and holy without works or merit. We are thereby saved from sin and death, granted mercy and made holy for the sake of his Son, in whom we believe. Thus we are allowed to take part in and enjoy the Son's salvation, life, and all things. We would definitely approve those statements here. And um, those statements were reworded and built into the 1530 August or Augsburg Confession, which the Lutheran Church still officially holds, although sometimes they deviate from the spirit of that truth. So, grace alone, salvation is not by our works. That's the salvation that was um, applied to us, the salvation that grace brings. Now, I want to apply this a little bit. Because this is all great in history and in the Bible, and we all agree, right? Well, some of us here may have been misled by the Catholic religion or by another religion. Even Lutheran churches today have strayed from Luther's insistence on grace alone. Some people um, may not even put two and two together about where their real faith, where their real dependence lies. They find hope in the rituals, in going to church, in in the works that they do for others. Maybe they prioritize those works higher than than listening to Scripture because they think it matters more. They believe with the Catholic Church that God helps those who help themselves. They are not sure that they are heirs of eternal life. They hope they are. They hope that their good works will outweigh their evil deeds. No, they probably don't believe in purgatory, but still they aren't sure of salvation. And who can be sure, really, right? Or perhaps there are some children here, some kids here who understand that God and their parents want them to obey and to be good. And they take in their parents' efforts to obey and worship. They learn Bible verses that tell them to obey and what they must do. They try hard to obey, but it's hard. They have no peace. They hope they are a good kid, but they know that they make mistakes too. They are not sure of their salvation. To them, obedience equals salvation and acceptance. This is a warning to us parents here as well. If you are a child who thinks that way or an adult who is trusting in their morality to be accepted by God, I hope you see that religion or obedience cannot save you. Being good cannot save you. Jesus Christ alone can save you by his grace alone. 
Just believe in the gospel, believe in Jesus, and seek out someone to learn more about saving grace. If you have any doubts at all about that, don't keep that in. Go talk to someone. Talk to one of the preachers. Talk to your parents. Talk to a Sunday school teacher. We want to have you understand saving grace. Now the next point. So we have the salvation that grace brings. And now the sanctification that grace brings. Verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Good works are important. They're not throwaway and nothing and it doesn't matter at all. Good works don't earn salvation, but they flow from it naturally. Another reformer, Ulrich Zwingli, said, Where there is true faith... Works necessarily result, just as fire necessarily brings with it heat. So where there is true faith, there will be works. The parallel to Titus 3 is Ephesians 2. And I'm going to turn there and read verses 7 through 10 real quick. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by Grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In both passages, works do not merit salvation, but works are the point of salvation. They're, they're a result of salvation. <clears throat> Romans twelve six underscores that grace brings the ability to do works. It talks about the gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So spiritual giftedness and spiritual gifts come from grace. Second Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So grace enables you to abound in every good work. <clears throat> now, we also see in our context of our passage in Titus, we saw Titus 2.11 talking about grace appearing, bringing salvation. And then look at verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So grace trains us, teaches us how to live. And then grace is showing us that God wants to have us be purified, be pure people. Verse 14 of chapter 2, speaking about Jesus, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Sometimes Christians can underscore the really simple, easy part that we're saved by faith and then they have zero zeal, no zeal at all to live for good works. 
And this is really the knife's edge. And even the reformers put it that way. The knife's edge upon which true faith rests. On the one hand, the Roman Catholics would say, well, good works are so necessary that without them you cannot be saved. In fact, you should really try really hard and have effort. And yes, Jesus matters and grace matters, but you get more grace if you keep doing right. But on the other side, the antinomians, those who said, well, if grace is alone all that matters, then we can live however we want to. And scripture even warns against that. Jude says, watch out for those who pervert the grace of God. And so there's this ditch on both sides of scriptural teaching. So grace saves us with no merit of our own, and grace sanctifies us. The only way to have good works which please God are works that are caused and rooted and grounded in his grace that trains you, his grace that enables you and that supplies you, realizing the role of those works. They're just fruit for him. They're not any part of the reason why God looks on us favorably. So this is right where perhaps it's closer to home for some of us than the last point. Maybe we're not doctrinally legalists like the Roman Catholics were, where we believe that works can save us, but we're practically legalists in the fact that we, yes, we understand that salvation is by grace, but yet our personal walk with God is not about grace at all. It's all about our obligation and duty. Scriptural teaching on sanctification is that it flows from an appreciation of salvation being not earned. This directly opposes the spirit of legalism, a modern-day problem paralleling Roman Catholic teaching. C.J. Mahaney defines legalism in his small but excellent book, The Cross-Centered Life. And he defines it this way. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. I'm going to repeat that again. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. This is not often directly stated, but as I said before, rather lived out in practice. We think of God as approving of us in direct relation to how well we keep our act together, doing the things that are expected of us. When we have a good week, we feel confident and joyous in worship. We really sing it out and we hold our head high. But when we have a week of failure where we have dropped the ball on a few things, made some mistakes, had some sins, um, now when we come to worship, we can't even lift our head up at all. We're so guilty. We're so burdened. This is ultimately sanctification by works or a performance oriented sanctification in practice we are acting as if our acceptance by god is only through our merit but it is not according to works done by us in righteousness that we are accepted by god it's by the grace of god and the grace of god alone our works should flow from a joyous experience of god's forgiveness 
based on Christ, not from a burdensome obligation or duty. If you find yourself burdened, look back to the Savior whose burden is light. Spend time reminding yourself of the gospel and be taught by grace. The Bible says in 1 John 5 that we know that we are of God. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. If you are burdened down trying to keep on obeying God, then you're missing something in your Christianity. Or if you find great joy in comparing yourself with other people and how your list of rules is longer than theirs, you're missing the point of what Christianity is about. And just as those other people, I urge them, talk to somebody about this. If this is a new thought for you, talk to a preacher, talk to a teacher, talk to someone that you respect in the faith. How do I know if there's some legalism in my life? How do I know what that is? What does that really mean? Have a conversation and look into that. Finally, we'll really briefly touch on this. The sovereignty that brings grace. So we have the salvation which grace brings. We have the sanctification which grace brings. But then standing behind that is the sovereignty which brings grace. And Titus chapter 1 verse 1 starts out, says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. What is going on here with this idea? Well, historically, there is more to say about the reformers and grace. Martin Luther saw the condition of humanity as so fallen that even his free will was bound to his evil nature and desires. He wrote about this in his famous book, The Bondage of the Will. John Calvin likewise emphasized the role of God's election when it comes to salvation. The reformers were not making stuff up just for fun, they were recovering historic doctrine that had been taught by Augustine and several other church leaders and teachers throughout the centuries. And they believed that they found this doctrine ultimately in Scripture. Not all the reformers agreed with Luther and Calvin. Big surprise there, because not all Christians today see the same when it comes to understanding this idea of sovereign grace. Still, as a direct result of the Reformation, the Presbyterians, the Reformed Church, and a majority of Baptists historically came to hold to what we now call sovereign grace. Sovereign grace, what is it? Well, it's the grace that enables us to believe. It's the grace that determines beforehand that we will be children of God. Now, the way that I like to think about this is it's if you pull the curtain back and look behind the scenes of what's going on under the skin inside your heart, God is there turning on the switch that allows you to respond to the gospel. The only reason that we would talk about it is because Scripture clearly teaches that. 
Um, but it is a confusing, sometimes, and difficult subject. We see this hinted at in Titus 1 and also in Ephesians 1. Again, Ephesians is our parallel passage. Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So he chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. And verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's additional support for this idea in Acts 18.27. It says, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Not those who believed in grace, but those who through grace had believed. A work of grace enabled them to believe. It really is not that different from sanctification. God enables us to keep his word, to do right. He and he, he, when, he, when a saved person, the Holy Spirit works in that person and they say, boy, the good works I do, they're not because of what I did. They're all because of the grace of God in me. That's how Paul talks Well, you just take a step back from that. The very fact that I'm saved. It's not because of me. I'm not different than my neighbor because I'm just really smart and he's really dumb. We both had the same person tell us about the gospel, but I believed and he didn't. No one believes that they're really special and that's why they believe. It's explaining why faith exists at all, given the fact that we're totally depraved. Romans 11 ties election with grace as well says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Romans 11, 5 through 6a. There's a whole lot that could be said about this, and we do not have time today. But there is additional teaching on election and God's call in places such as John 6, Romans 8, and 1 Corinthians 1. And the whole point of believing that, number one, is the scripture teaches it. And number two, it magnifies the greatness of God's grace and it minimizes the importance of what we do. It is something that should, if you really understand the scriptural teaching and the reformers teaching on it, it does not give you a big head. It gives you a big heart. It lets you see that God is really at work in this world. And although I don't see a hope for that person, perhaps God can change them. It really allows us to have a greater appreciation for what God has done. The reason I bring this up is because it's part of the Reformation teaching and it's part of our church's elder affirmation of faith, which you can get a copy of and read if you want to. So our church's elder affirmation of faith holds this view. Suffice it to say, again, this view magnifies God's grace even more. He has not only made salvation completely dependent on his work. He even gave us the faith to believe. How can we go wrong if God has done that for us? Despite differences on this point, the reformers still agreed that it was by grace alone, apart from merit, that we are saved. Those, that excerpt that I read from the Marburg Colloquy, not all of those guys agreed on election, but they all agreed that salvation was by grace through faith alone. So in conclusion, I want to bring us back to the main point of grace 
And actually, I found a quote by another reformer, Rudolf Gwalther, who was a man who was a preacher in the 1500s, in the mid-1500s in Zurich. And he worked closely with Heinrich Bullinger. And he's commenting in a sermon on Paul's final blessing in Galatians 6, 18, which says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. And he kind of sums up everything I would, I would say about grace in this one quotation here. And then we'll pray. Paul prays that the Galatians will have grace. That is to say, the free favor of God, which he bestows on us in his son in order to remind us again of the source of our salvation and call us back from the superstitious observance of legal ceremonies that the false apostles were forcing on them. His desire is that grace should be with their spirit. That is, that it should so penetrate their minds and that they should be so well grounded in it that they may go on and be strengthened in their faith and bear witness to it in their behavior. It is not enough to glory in the grace of God and confess Christ as Lord and Savior. We must also reflect his spirit and live lives worthy of our profession. I say amen to that. May we all live godly lives through the power of the grace that God provides to us richly in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, these things are wonderful and they are big and they are massively important. And I pray for people who may be affected by doctrinal legalism, thinking that their salvation depends upon their obedience, that their acceptance with God depends upon their obedience or religious ritual or good works. Lord, I pray that those people would come and understand that it is through grace alone that we are saved. And then I pray for those who may be entangled with the bondage of legalism, who are sincere and they love God and they really want to obey him, but yet they feel like they can't and they're frustrated and they're misled perhaps. I pray that you would remind them of the power of the gospel that it is grace alone that gives us acceptance with God. And that it is because of his grace that good works can be performed out of love and gratitude and thanks from what Jesus has already done for us. Help us to steer carefully down that narrow path and not land on either side of the errors that are there. Thank you again for your word, not according to works, done by us in righteousness, but according to your mercy, you saved us for no reason other than the kindness, the loving kindness and the goodness of God. Thank you. Help us to prize that more today. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.